Good evening. Biden pushes Congress to act on his infrastructure and build back better agenda while the government is heading towards default, a gun violence commemoration and the longest held prisoner in the forever wars. With these and other, stu- uh, with these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. During a speech in Howell, Michigan, President Joe Biden laid out the case for passing his infrastructure and build back better laws. Biden says the world is at an inflection point and Congress must act. They're about leading the world or continue to let the world pass us by, which is literally happening. To support these investments is to create a rising America. America is moving. To oppose these investments is to be complicit in America's decline. To support these bills is to pursue a broader vision of our nation and oppose them is to accept a very cramped view of our future. This isn't about two pieces of legislation. It's about the inflection point I mentioned earlier we are in our history, the world history. President Biden, Democrats were scheduled to vote on an infrastructure bill last week, but were unable to reach agreement on a budget reconciliation package. Leaders have given themselves till October 31st to reach a deal and pass both bills. We'll have more on this story later in the newscast. Last month marked 20 years since 3,000 people were killed in the attacks on the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and on a plane that crashed in a Pennsylvania field after a fight on board. The first suspect picked up by the CIA in the crime was Abu Zubaida, now 50 years old, held without charges, trial, or release date. In a 2014 Senate report on the interrogations that happened after he was arrested, the CIA conceded that El Zubaida was not or was never a member of Al-Qaeda and was not involved in planning the 9-11 attacks. His case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court tomorrow, where lawyers will attempt to win authorization to question two private contractors hired to design the torture regimen used against Abu Zubaydah. One of the attorneys on Abu Zubaydah's team is Joe Margulies. He represented him since 2007. Abu Zubaydah is a stateless Palestinian. He's now 50 years old. He's been in U.S. custody since shortly after 9-11. He's never been charged, never will be charged. He was arrested in late March of 2002 at the time at a home in Pakistan. At the time, the U.S. thought he was a senior member of al-Qaeda, one of the planners of 9-11, a close associate with Osama bin Laden, etc. And it was on the basis of that misbelief that he was the first person held in a CIA black site and the first person to have his interrogation, quote, enhanced and the first person subjected to the um, EITs, the Enhanced Interrogation Techniques. And he was the person for whom the United States, the Bush administration, wrote the torture memo. The the torture memo was to facilitate his torture because he was first. They later learned that he was not the person they thought he was, that he had no, he was not a member of al-Qaeda, ideologically opposed to al-Qaeda, had no connection to 9-11, etc., but not until they tortured the bejesus out of him. He was held in a variety of black sites, and the case in the Supreme Court now asks whether we can depose James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, who were the CIA contractors who were the architects of the torture program and tortured him at various sites, whether we can depose them about what they saw and did to Abu Zubaydah at the black site in Poland. We know a lot about what happened to him at other black sites, but no one has ever 
establish what happened to him at Poland. And the reason that's important is because there is a Polish investigation going on into whether crimes were committed at that black site. So we are trying to take their depositions in order to support the Polish investigation. It's going to be argued tomorrow, October 6th. The narrow question is whether testimony that Mitchell and Jessen would give is a, quote, state secret. The United States, starting with the Trump administration, but continuing with the Biden administration, maintains that anything that they would say is protected by the state secrets doctrine. And so they say, nope, these guys are completely off limits. They can't testify to anything they did, anything they saw, anything they heard, et cetera. That's the narrow question. But the broader question, which is also part of the Supreme Court inquiry, is whether torture in a democracy can be kept in the dark. That's really what this case is about. The core consideration is whether torture will be kept secret. And related to that, whether there can ever be accountability for treating another person as though they were beyond the circle of human concern, as though they were simply not one of us. Can there be accountability for that? That's really the core question that's before the court. The outcome, do you have any expectation? People think we have no chance in the Supreme Court. I disagree. What they saw, heard, and did to Abu Zubaydah is not and ought not be classified, and we ought to be able to get that information, and we expect the Supreme Court will recognize that. Abu Zubaydah, where is he and what's happening to him? Uh, He is at Guantanamo, has been at Guantanamo now since September of 2006. He's never been charged. I'm sure he'll never be charged. He is one of those prisoners they say they can hold forever. When they started torturing him in 2002, the team that was interrogating him at the first black site in Thailand sent a cable to CIA headquarters saying, we're all in agreement here, right? Abu Zubaydah will never, ever be released and will be held incommunicado for the rest of his life, right? And the CIA headquarters sent a cable back saying, yes, that's the understanding. And so far, they've made good on that. Uh, So it's my job to try to undo that. To destroy this man in public. And now at this point, they're destroying a man in public for us all to see. Deeply, deeply embarrassing what, what, what they did to him. He was the poster child for the torture program because he was the first. And if they can't get it right in his case, and they got it profoundly wrong, then it is a real indictment, and I use that in all senses of the word, of that program. And I don't think they want him available as a witness about what was done in the U.S.'s name. Is that a violation of federal law to interfere with a witness? (laughs) Uh, Well, of course, they say he's not a witness, so. And, you know, then you get into questions, well, what law applies at Guantanamo, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Welcome to my world. A couple of good movies, but uh, it's real life. <laughs> That's right. Except for it's real life and there's a man's, a man's fate at stake. Attorney Joe Margulies has represented Abu Zubaydah since 2007. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo.
On Capitol Hill today, Senate leaders Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell dug in their heels, making no progress to avoid a looming default if no agreement is reached in raising the debt limit. Senator Schumer has refused to consider raising the debt ceiling using the complicated reconciliation process that could delay a vote on President Biden's own big spending bills. The Democratic leader argues Republicans are irresponsibly jeopardizing the United States economy. We can stop this Republican-manufactured debt ceiling crisis in its tracks, or Republicans can keep driving our country ever closer to the first default in American history. It's perfectly clear to everyone, everyone, that Democrats are working to prevent a default, and Republicans are deliberately making it more likely to happen. Republicans have been offered multiple opportunities to take a step back and de-escalate the crisis they've created. But each time, the Republican leader has chosen to escalate it instead. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer. Schumer plans to bring up a bill to suspend the debt ceiling for a cloture vote, a vote to proceed to a final vote on the bill. Meanwhile, GOP leader Mitch McConnell claims that because Democrats are pushing through their massive spending agenda on a party line vote basis, they should raise the debt ceiling that way, too. They said they're perfectly prepared to do the job themselves. The easiest way to do that is through the reconciliation process, as I've pointed out, for two months. How is that easier than Republicans just not filibustering it and then passing it with 50 votes? That would require getting consent from every single Republican to lower the threshold to 51. Do you not have the power I, I can't, to do that? I can't imagine that would happen. GOP leader, Senator Mitch McConnell. In related news, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sounded an urgent call today for Congress to raise the debt limit. If the debt limit isn't raised by October 18th, Yellen warned the full faith and credit of the United States would be impaired and our country would likely face a financial crisis and economic recession. And in more news from Washington, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen testified to the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection today, two days after her dramatic appearance, Sunday night on 60 Minutes. She presented a wide-ranging condemnation of Facebook, her former employer, accusing the company of failing to make changes to Instagram after internal research showed apparent harm to some teens. Haugen said, Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us, but is following a profits over safety strategy. To be able to share fun photos of your kids with old friends, you must also be inundated with anger-driven virality. They want you to believe that this is just part of the deal. I am here today to tell you that's not true. These problems are solvable. But there's one thing that I hope everyone takes away from these disclosures. It is that Facebook can change, but is clearly not going to do so on its own. What we saw in Myanmar and are now seeing in Ethiopia are only the opening chapters of a story so terrifying, no one wants to read the end of it. Congress can change the rules that Facebook plays by and stop the many harms it is now causing. We now know the truth about Facebook's destructive impact. I came forward at great personal risk. I'm asking you, our elected representatives, to act. Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen Violent conflict in several countries, as she mentioned, has been attributed to false reports published by people who wanted fights to happen and to occur on Facebook. Facebook says Haugen's allegations are misleading, insisting there's no evidence to support the idea it's the primary cause of social polarization. 
And in an appearance on Fox News host Sean Hannity's program last night, former Vice President Mike Pence offered harsh words for the Biden administration and another glimpse into the aftermath of the January 6th riot at the United States Capitol, asserting he had no authority to reject any electoral votes certified by states as wrongly insisted by Trump. At past speeches, he's called the idea downright un-American. But despite the tension between the two former leaders on that day, with some Trump supporters charging through the United States Capitol chanting, hang Mike Pence, and a mock gallows erected outside the building, Pence says he and Trump have patched things up. Look, you can't spend uh, almost five years in a political foxhole without somebody, without without developing a strong relationship. And, uh, you know, January 6th was a tragic day uh, in the history of our Capitol building. But uh, thanks to the efforts of uh, Capitol Hill police, federal officials, the Capitol was secured. We finished our work. Uh, And the president and I sat down a few days later and talked through all of it. I can tell you that we parted amicably at the end of the administration, and we've talked a number of times since we both left office. But but I believe that our entire focus today should be on the future. I know the media wants to distract from the Biden administration's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January. They want to use that one day oh. to try and demean uh, the, the, the character and intentions of 74 million Americans who believed we could be strong again and prosperous again and supported our administration in 2016 and in 2020. But for our part, I, I truly believe we all ought to remain completely focused on the future. That's where I'm focused, and I, I really well, I do want believe, a commission too. I believe that I believe the future is bright. One day in January could be cinematic. That was former Vice President Mike Pence on the Sean Hannity show last night. Trump had wanted Pence to declare the election was corrupt and allow states to name rival slates of presidential electors, throwing the election to the House under a never before used provision of the Constitution that would have probably ushered reelection of President Trump. According to Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, Pence sought advice from fellow Hoosier and former Vice President Dan Quayle. Quayle reportedly told him to just count the votes. And in related news, a bipartisan group of California lawyers and retired judges is urging the state to open an investigation into the pro-Trump lawyer who tried to convince Pence to overturn the election. In a letter, the group said serious evidence of professional misconduct by pro-Trump attorney John Eastman should be investigated, adding Eastman violated his ethical obligations as an attorney by filing frivolous claims, making false statements and engaging in deceptive conduct. Eastman dismissed the complaint as hyper-partisan and political. Eastman is the, the former attorney, the law school professor, who came up with the strategy mentioned in the earlier story that Trump used to try and make Pence announce that the election was corrupt and would be thrown to the House of Representatives for a vote that probably would have ushered in Donald Trump as president, reelected as president. In April, Gabby Giffords installed a memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. with 40,000 flowers, representing the number of Americans who die from gun violence each year. Today, she brought the gun violence memorial to Battery Park in New York City. Linda Perry reports. 1,050 vases of flowers representing New Yorkers who died of gun violence this year are on display in the Oval at Battery Park in Lower Manhattan. Former Congress member Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head back in 2011, has become a leader in gun violence prevention. She says stopping gun violence takes courage. The courage to do what's right, the courage of new ideas. I've seen great courage when my life was on the line. 
Now is the time to come together. Be responsible. Democrats, Republicans, everyone. We must never stop fighting. Fight, fight, fight. Be bold. Be courageous. The nation's counting on you. Natasha Christopher lost her son to gun violence. Akil Christopher was shot in the back of his head while walking home from a graduation party. My son would survive for 14 days and then died on his 15th birthday, July 10, 2012. Um, That would change my whole life. But I tell people, I'm able to stand here today because of a pain that gave me purpose. Christopher, looking out on the memorial, says we must put an end to senseless gun violence. I don't want to ever have to bury another child. I have surviving other kids, and I wake up every single day fearing that my 15-year-old son will not make it home, and I should not have to live like that. This right here is great, but this should not be happening. I will stand here and support the Congresswoman because I believe in her cause. But this is not what we're supposed to be standing here for. Natasha Christopher wants Congress to act. Jerry Nadler agrees. The New York representative is chair of the House Judiciary Committee, instrumental in passage of a universal criminal background check in the House. It's H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2021. Guns are used in suicides, domestic violence, gun, gang violence, and in so many other tragedies. It is time for us to act. We've we've had too many moments of silence and too many expressions of sympathy. Too many families are grieving the loss of a loved one. As challenging as this problem is, we have the ability to address it and to save lives. Nadler says we should act and we should act now. Representative Hakeem Jeffries, chair of the Democratic Caucus, also from New York, says America is a great country in part because the framers didn't promise perfect, but a march towards a more perfect union. And now we're called at this moment in this imperfect country as we march toward a more perfect union to try to address the epidemic of gun violence here in America, the wealthiest country, the greatest country in the history of the world. A country, however, that has 4% of the world's population, but more than 40% of the world's guns. It's estimated that there are more than 300 million guns circulating throughout America, many of which law enforcement has no idea where they are or how they may fall into the hands of criminals who will do harm to our families. Like Representative Nadler, Representative Jeffrey says the House has acted and we need the Senate to act. We need Congress as a whole to have the courage to change the conditions in this country. According to the FBI, there has been a 30 percent spike in murders, 70 percent of which are associated with a firearm. 
That's an increase driven by access to firearms. Giffords is an organization dedicated to saving lives from gun violence. Their executive director is Peter Ambler. He echoes messages from our New York representatives. The House has acted. The leaders behind me have acted. But we need Republicans in the Senate to listen to the 90 percent of their constituents, to the doctors, to the gun owners, to the businesses, to people in this country who simply want to live free of gun violence. Ambler says the Gun Violence Memorial is a call to act on gun violence prevention and solutions. You can visit the memorial in Battery Park through October 8th. Then it continues to move across the country to encourage leaders to take effective gun violence measures. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. And closer to home at City Hall in New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio signed a law, a bill into law today sponsored by Council Member Francisco Moya. The legislation requires severance pay for hotel service employees if a hotel with over 100 rooms that laid off over 75 percent of its employees or closed during the pandemic fails to reopen by November 1st, 2021. If a hotel doesn't reopen by November 1st, the legislation requires the hotel to pay a weekly benefit of $500 per employee for a period of up to 30 weeks. At the bill signing, hotel workers representing the Hotel Trades Council celebrate with the mayor. My name is Denise and I work at the front desk at the Grand Hyatt, New York. I got laid off March 2020. I've been working at the hotel for 23 years. I have a son and three grandchildren. This job has been my lifeline and it has helped me to provide for my family. After being laid off and living on unemployment, it was very challenging to pay my bills and support myself and my family without even knowing when I'll be going back to work. But today, things are looking much more hopeful. Because of the severance bill and all the hard work that went into getting it passed, I was just called back yesterday. I can continue to support my family and my grandkids. Council member, Francisca Moyer. CCC in the house. This legislation is creating an opportunity for workers to get back on their feet to ensure families can put food on the table and to revitalize New York City's hotel industry. Mayor Bill de Blasio, your whole industry was suddenly shut down. And I know that must have hurt. That must have been frightening. That must have been confusing. That must have been a lot of conversations around the kitchen table. How are we possibly going to make ends meet? Will we ever get our jobs back? That's what people felt. I heard it. That's why this bill is so important. To make people whole. People who helped make New York City great. Remember why all those tourists came, why all those hotels were so coveted? Because these working people made them great. A few years ago, we hit a stunning number. 67 million tourists. No one ever imagined a number like that in a single year. And I guarantee you they are coming back. We're already seeing domestic tourism coming back strong. The international tourism is being opened up. And there's a lot of pent-up demand all over the world. And guess where they want to go? They want to come to New York City and they need you to be there for them. We've just heard that the Hilton, one of the biggest hotels in the city, 
is reopening and bringing back 300 jobs. And that's what we need. Are we ready to sign this legislation? But the owner of the Lexington Hotel, Hilda Garvey, wasn't happy. She says owners were not invited to the negotiations for the severance bill. Very disappointed to learn of this bill that was passed um, after the fact without us as an industry having an opportunity uh, to have an input. As you know, our industry has been decimated as a result of the COVID at the table. I've always been a believer of inviting all parties to the table, so for all parties. We can look to reopen our hotels fully after that. Hilda Garvey of the Lexington Hotel. In COVID news, a group of anti-vaccine protesters were caught on video busting up an outdoor COVID-19 testing site as they walked through Union Square on Monday. The protesters, marching against the city's vaccine mandates for public school teachers, along with demonstrators holding a sign demanding health freedom now, appeared to abruptly target the testing site as they walked by. And they were chanting, shame on you. The protesters flipped the table and knocked down a tent outside a mobile testing van on East 14th Street and Union Square East. A pair of NYPD officers directed the protesters away from the tent as two more cops joined them to set it up right. But the video doesn't show that any of the protesters were detained or arrested. And finally, New York City's library card systems have eliminated late fees and cleared all prior fines from cardholders' accounts, immediately restoring borrowing rights to 400,000 New Yorkers whose cards were blocked after hitting $15 in accrued fines. The city's systems, the New York Public Library covering Manhattan, the Bronx and Staten Island, the Brooklyn Public Library and Queens Public Library are now together the largest urban library network to eliminate late fees, a policy increasingly embraced in large metropolitan systems. According to Melanie Huggins, the president of the Public Library Association, a professional organization of library workers, eliminating fines, especially during the pandemic encourages vulnerable residents to use libraries for job searches and increasingly filing for rent protection. And 2021, the news produced Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening and make sure you patronize your local library.